0: I might begin with this key image that we put here so that the figure walking towards you um, approaches you as you walk into the gallery. Um, and this is by the Dutch artist Guido van uh, der Werve. Um, and this footage, I mean, clearly this is a staged image. So this is an icebreaker um, ploughing through the ice off the coast of um, Finland, um, where ironically the sea ice is much thicker than it used to be. So you'd think, um, it's kind of counterintuitive in a way, you think of the melting ice caps and um, glaciers that are retreating due to global climate change, that um, ice is being reduced globally. But in some areas, as we know, for instance, you know, you get some people saying in Australia, well, you know, if we've got climate change and we've got drought, why are we inundated by all of these floods that we have in Queensland? It's because um, when you get such a, a massive global change, in um, global um, temperatures and ocean warming and so forth, it can have quite different effects in different regions. So it basically destabilizes the whole weather system. In any case, so Guido, Guido uh, um and here he is quite bravely, walking not that far, really, from the front of this massive um, icebreaker thousands of tons of steel. And in some ways, this represents, um, I guess, the progress of modernity, of human technology, and its invasive effect on uh, natural environments. But like all the works in this exhibition, you can't really say, this means that. We've chosen works in, particularly for, in particular for their um, poetic qualities. So it's not like, the discourses of science, where you know um, scientists um, give us very important information on environmental change and they can give us facts and they can give us figures and we can understand them on a rational basis. This is really um, work uh, throughout the exhibition informed by that kind of science, but speaking to the viewer through the language of art. So, and the other thing um, I'm always mindful of is choosing art that doesn't kind of bash the viewer over the head with a message. Not didactic, but appealing to hearts and minds in a more subtle way through the poetics uh, of art and the aesthetics of art. So it's a very striking image. You can't quite pin down exactly what it means, but you've got a rough idea. And it's a very assertive image. of um, of technology and modernity and um, uh, contrasted against the natural environment, this pristine environment. But it's also a reminder that um, environments like this, the ice may not last that much uh, longer with global warming. Um, I think what we'll do now is move into this back area here. This triptych here is a work by my um, colleague at RMIT, Dominic Redfern, who often focuses on um, uh, botanical species. uh, In Australia, he looks at um, um, uh, the growth of introduced um, (coughs) weed species and so on. But what he did here, this was when uh, Dominic went to um, uh, in, uh, the Shep, uh, in the um, Orkney Islands at the very northeast top of uh, Scotland. And um, this is, uh, as you can see from the central image here, this was um, once the site, um, well it's now a very important archaeological site, of an ancient Neolo- Neolithic uh, village. So people have been living in this part of the Orkney Isles Um, for millennia, not just hundreds of years, but thousands and thousands of years. And so there's always been a connection between the land and the sea in in this area. There's lots of islands in this area and also to the northwest of Scotland. And what he's looking at here is the detritus and the flotsam and jetsam that washes up on the shore that tells its own story about the history of the island. from um, seaweed um, to um, bits of plastic that f- um, float up to bits and pieces from submarines that have been in the area, but also um, and to wire um, to the fishing, um, uh, bits of string from fishing nets because the people here have traditionally depended on the ocean for sustenance or fishing. Um, and fishing. Um, uh, and it also records a long history, if you like, of this region. Um, which was quite um, it was quite strategic to the British Isles during um, the Second World War, and so submarines were around the island and so forth. So there's bits of submarine netting, all sorts of things, and it's as if these objects um, are the kind of um, it's a kind of an archaeological approach, if you like, um, to uh, the history of um, human relationship with the ocean and shore in, in this region. Um, I'm going to go get you all to swivel around now, so I can talk about uh, Lynn Roberts Goodwin, who is an Australian um, artist. And these, are the, these are the um, two works that are strictly about global oceans, in a sense. I'm getting feedback from somewhere, oh, it's from somewhere else. Um, this is, in fact, these are two photographs of the Dead Sea, taken from the Israeli um, side of the sea. Um, And what you're looking at at here is a view over to Jordan. So in the middle of this sea, there is an invisible geopolitical boundary. So the border, if you like, between Israel and Jordan. Um, There are desalination plants in this area. And there's also um, a a big industrial plant. And that's um, this electricity pylon is linked to that plant where they take the salt from the sea, and um, they, they turn it into um, the basics of um, fertilizer and so on. So it's a kind of global resource um, for fertilizers. But what that's doing is it's further depleting the sea, which is all, already very, very high in salt. The sea is famous um, as one of those places where you can sit in the ocean and read the newspaper, or sit in the sea and read the newspaper, uh, it's so buoyant. Um, but now, in fact, it's becoming so densely salty that, um, and and also the temperatures. Are, this is a very hot part of the Earth. Um, temperatures are, are quite regularly in the in the mid to high 30s, if not over, and um, they're, they're just starting to lose a bit of traction in the tourist trade because. Um, near to this uh, area on the Israeli side, there are some hotels, resorts, quite swanky resorts. But people And people used to come here and bathe in the ocean because that salty water is supposed to be therapeutic, you know, for your skin and so on. But now it's having the other effect. Some people feel like it's burning a little bit. Um, so um, this is a, a classic example of environmental damage having an impact on the economy. Um, And it's also a highly contested geopolitical zone. We know uh, that Israel, in relation to the countries of the Middle East, this is a very full political zone. So it's not as if this artist has just kind of arbitrarily chosen the site. She's chosen it very carefully as an instance of um, a place place on earth (coughs) that's both highly contested and being eroded quite significantly um, by ecological decay. And now I'm going to take you into our magic blue cave. So follow me. Not oh, blue. Uh, that one. No, Not the one. Can we just go into the team oh. lab? Just. Oh. Okay. We're wanted in this one here. Okay. Um, okay. Blue cave later, it seems. Okay. Okay, this work here is by, I'll wait until a few of you come forward. Come round. This is by a group of Japanese artists who call themselves Team Lab. (coughs) And this is an ongoing project in real time. So, as you can see, it's a digital animation. And it unfolds um, rather like a Japanese or a Chinese um, scroll. Um, And the project was begun in 2009. And at that point, the sea level was a little bit lower. Over to the right there, that's a record of the subtle shifts in sea ocean rise globally on that little screen to the far right. And that's what's occurring now, as we speak, that, you know, there are changes going on. So the ocean is getting, with global warming and the melting of the ice, um, the sea levels are rising. Now, there are all sorts of scenarios as to how extreme that can be. With two two degrees global warming, it will reach a certain level um, that's going to be very, very difficult to cope with by, if we go to three degrees global warming um, it's going to be pretty much catastrophic and a lot of our cities are going to be um, ha- having to deal um, with the incursion of the ocean on the coast. So this is um, you know, tracking this process in real time. Hopefully if we mitigate against global climate change it will remain pretty much level. But if we don't eventually it will Go up and cover and cover the land completely. In a way, the image directly behind you, um, if you swivel around <coughs> um, to look at the um, iceberg, this is by the British artist Chris Wainwright. And um, there is a in England quite a well known um, environmental, long term environmental art project called Cape Farewell. And what these guys do is they get a big sailing ship. James, you'll know about this. Um, And they go up into the Arctic region, and they take very well-known artists, writers, filmmakers, uh, choreographers, um, a whole range of people working in the cultural field to respond to the changes that are happening in the Arctic region. Um, There is a sort of an approximate counterpart. There's an Antarctic scheme uh, for visiting (coughs) artists um, to uh, go down to the Antarctic and record what they're seeing. And we've included some of their work in previous exhibitions in the RMIT Gallery, which, by the way, has been very much at the forefront, um, long before climate, in um, putting um, forth uh, exhibitions around environmental themes, because it's a very uh, forward-thinking gallery. So this is Chris Wainwright, and he went up to um, the um, Arctic, just off the coast of Greenland, in the Arctic Circle, and um, in this big sailing ship, and then he had to get down into a little dinghy, a little rubber dinghy, and this is in sub-zero temperatures, and um, sail off to get to, at dusk to capture these um, uh, photographs of the icebergs by reflecting red light onto them and then photographing them. It's a very high uh, quality photograph, um, but it gives the impression of burning ice, you know, that it's almost literally burning up before our eyes. So that's its metaphoric resonance, if you like. It's... Um, Uh, um, articulating a process but doing it subtly in a very simple image in a way, um, but no less um, effective for all of that. So in a sense this image here is responding directly to what's going on up there, because once those icebergs melt completely, that sea level will go off. If you look behind you here, (coughs) um, this is The work of um, the Australian artist Janet Lawrence, um, who for a long time now has been focusing on the erosion of um, our Great Barrier Reef here in Australia, which is, I'm sure you'll know, is a UNESCO um, uh, site, uh, should be under um, um, global protection, Um, and it's um, all the more at risk at the moment because of new coal mines that are... Um, um, well, the, the current government is trying to push through legislation to <clears throat> have the Adani coal mine built near the reef, and um, that's a hugely problematic thing. But it's not just um, um, that, it's the effect of um, global changes that are affecting the reef. So all of us are, in a, in, in a way participating in the problem of the reef because as we burn carbon fuel and it adds to um, greater CO2 in the atmosphere so the temperatures of the ocean worldwide are are, are warming up and this is pretty deadly to coral. Now you may think oh well coral, bit of coral reef, you know it's not the end of the world but coral is is absolutely crucial um, nursery if you like of um, Oceanic ecosystems, <clears throat> and um, it's a very serious matter indeed as they as they die down. And uh, we already know that the Great Barrier Reef has um, incurred a great deal of, of damage. And it's um, uh, I think in 2003 there was a particularly warm uh, year um, uh, when you know there were unprecedentedly hot summers in Europe, where pe- elderly people in France were dying of the heat wave and so on because they weren't used to it. And that led to um, a jump in the um, uh, global temperatures. And this affected the warming, and a lot of the reef um, suffered uh, in that year. And it alternates a little bit from year to year, but gradually, 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 it's deteriorating very significantly. And it would be terrible to lose this. Um, and I hope that when we get through to look at the Lynette and Walworth um, <clears throat> piece in the building, to, uh, in the gallery at the front um, right hand side as we go out, which I'll show you, that shows you just that what is at stake at losing um, this, these sorts of marine ecosystems, which are marvellously diverse and beautiful. Um, <clears throat> now, Lawrence's work, she uses uh, metaphors of recitation um, techniques in hospitals for people, which often includes like um, um, glass tubes and bits of um, um, transparent plastic wires and so on, which are part of life support systems (coughs) to help people who are are having difficulty breathing naturally. So the analogy she's drawing is that the reef is also struggling to breathe, to stay alive if you like, so she's, um, you can just see those um, wires and glass tubes and so on that are used metaphorically um, in an attempt to resuscitate the reef in the viewer's imaginary. So if we swivel around and we look behind us, <clears throat> this is a work by um, Jason deCara's taylor um, who is a British artist who makes underwater sculptures all around the world, and uh, this one is we just just recently finished this year. This is the first time this work's been shown shown in Australia, and it's of this sort of like fantasy child figure um, looking at his or her own reflection in this big mirror that's also reflecting the surface. Of the water as seen below. And you can see the diver coming in there um, to take a photo or to illuminate it. Um, and this is just off the coast of um, Spain in a shallow party of the Atlantic. <clears throat> and I'm going to show you another couple of images by De Caris Taylor. I'm sorry, we've got that in the other room, and I'm going to show you now, so follow me. I can go there after. So just to recap, I don't know why I overlooked this last time. This is also Jason DeCara's taylor <clears throat> and it's a, it's a slightly earlier work. This is 2011, and this is in the sea of Cancun, off the coast of uh, Mexico, in the Caribbean. And we've used this in a way as a kind of a keynote image. Because here he is, your classic couch potato, stuffing himself with junk food, idly watching the TV. It's an image that just springs passive consumption. And this is our problem. This is our, well, it's a global problem. This is what the artist is kind of suggesting. <clears throat> that, um, you know, for one thing, um, many of our cities can end up underwater. If the world warms up um, significantly. Um, but it's also got another function because this artist uses pH neutral um, concrete um, so it's not in any sense toxic to the environment. Um, what's happened over time, this is, this is a photo taken just after it was installed, but since then algae and um, Uh, small um, um, plants and crustaceans have attached themselves to the surface. And what Jason DeCaris-Taylor does is he often chooses a shallow area of the ocean where there's not a lot for the... um, It can be subject to hurricanes um, and storms that can sometimes break up the coral. So in a sense, it forms a kind of architecture for a new coral reef... Um, and we'll see another work shortly um, uh, that makes use of that idea as well. So they've actually, uh, ironically, even though this is um, uh, an image of destructive consumption, the sculpture itself has become, um, uh, has provided something of a little ecological niche um, for these small marine creatures. Now we're going into the magic blue cave. Can I oh. ask a question? Oh, there, hang on, we've got a question here. Was there a reason those two were put in separate rooms? Or? Was there a reason they were put in separate rooms? Yes. Yeah, yeah we just wanted to divide them? the... No, not because oh, yeah. they didn't fit. A lot of thought has gone into yes. this installation, yeah. um, and it's a, it's a way of just kind of varying. We don't want necessarily overkill in one area, okay. but to, to, to sort Perfect. of break it up. Okay. <clears throat> Here's a blue cave. What's that? Oh, okay. Okay, let's start with this. these wonderful paintings. We decided to paint this room blue to give you the sense of being under the water. This is our underwater realm in here, um, and a very nice blue it is as well. This is the work of the Australian painter Sam I've had a mental block. Leaked. Thank you. I don't know how to forget that. was my PhD I just had a mental break. Sandwich. And what you see here are two creatures from the very deep part of the ocean. Not very light down there. In fact, it's very dark. And this anglerfish here <coughs> actually has on the end of this a little light. And it's a female of the species because the females are big and the males are these tiny little things. And when they finish mating, it's really ghastly. She absorbs them into her body. I've done with you. I'll use your protein as well. Um, So it's a sort of slightly grotesque image of these amazing creatures. And so she, she shines a light and some little fish will swim by and be attracted by the light and swim nearby and then boom, there's a lot of teeth, very sharp teeth in there. So these are really bizarre creatures and there's a lot of life down there that we probably haven't yet even um, seen or certainly not classified. And this is a good example. This is um, a jellyfish again from the deep deeps of the ocean called Gran Rojo or Latin term for big red if you like and they can grow about this big like um, almost like a, 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 like a metre wide and they're pretty hefty things um, and in here the artist has inscribed just subtly some Latin phrases and a kind of Linnaean um, text um, which means this species, is phylum against the world <coughs> um, but instead of the tentacles that Jellyfish normally use to stun their prey, or if you, you know, there are dangerous ge- jellyfish that are dangerous to us as well if we're swimming. <clears throat> this has got these strange, fleshy sort of arms, and then they don't always have the same number. Sometimes they have four, sometimes they have seven. Um, and we're still not quite sure how it feeds um, because we've only sort of seen it rarely, and it was only classified in 2003. <coughs> ...excuse me, as a new species. Um, this creature down here, in this stomach work, this is by... She was originally um, from Germany, Mariana um and now she lives in the UK. She teaches at a, an art school in Bath in the UK. Um, and this is um, a deep-sea giant squid that was found and taken to the Museum of Natural History in London, and it was kept in the basement in a great big tank of formalin, or formaldehyde. And this is exactly the same image. She's doubled it up to give a sense of emphasis to just how long this creature is. And um, when you, if, if you take the time, there are also sort of subtle sound effects that you can listen to through the earphones, but you get a sense of its size. And she's also not um, ignoring the fact that it's decayed a little bit. So any of these creatures that are pulled out of their own world into ours suffer decay um, because they're exposed to light, to air, to heat, and so on. And and so she just simply records how these species are um, kept in natural history museums. The image on the far wall, however, is kind of more poetic in its resonance. And this is by the English artist Emma Critchley. And um, if you look, that's the image that's projected on the wall. It's called Passage. Um, Now, there's quite a bit going on here. Um, She also collaborated with a guy called John Roach, who's a sound artist. And... What John Moach has done is put um, um, an an aquaphone into this water where there is some soft sedimentary rock and chalk um, that's slowly dissolving. I don't know if... I can't hear the sound of it, but I'm going to plop some in. um, And let's see if we can hear its um, effects. This is chalk. Now, before I do this, I should explain that chalk is comprised of um, basically the bodies of millions of um, um, dead plankton. So what happens in the, uh, not just chalk, but marble is made of that and limestone. So what happens is as the microscopic plankton dies, They've got, Each one's got like a little shell, an exoskeleton. So they're skeletons on the outside, not in the inside. And the, this is the absolutely fundamental basis of the whole food chain in the ocean, these little creatures. Keep that in mind because I'm going to talk about that when we get outside again. And as they die, they filter down to the bottom of the open. They sprinkle down, if you like. And they lay on the ocean floor, and it's happening all the time because there are billions and billions and billions of these creatures in the ocean. Now, over thousands of years, what happens is that there's layers of sediment congeal, and with geologic pressure, they get firmer and firmer. Now, some form chalk, because they're microscopic, remember, and some under great pressure different sort of conditions form marble, beautiful white marble, and others might form limestone, like, you know, you see in buildings around you. So when you think about it, we're surrounded by the ocean in our cities and stone buildings. When we look at marble sculpture, that's from the ocean. So it's not as if the ocean is kind of right out there and we and the cities are somewhere else There are subtle forms of connection between the the two. And that's an important idea behind this exhibition. What are the connections between our lives in the city and the world's oceans? And most of this planet is comprised of ocean. And we ourselves come from the ocean. We evolved out of the ocean. We come from those first... Fish that developed, their front flippers developed um, limbs and they came on shore. And this takes millions of years, this process. But in one sense, the ocean is our evolutionary home. Back to the chalk. Let's see if it works. Okay. So what's going on here? On, we've got a, kind of got a, a tension between the image and the object. So what's... Oh, have I done that? So what, what's suggested by the image in this passage? This is really about a passage of time. Because it's a sense in which the oceans are about deep time. Not just deep physically, but deep. In in eons, in thousands of years, and just like this form out of sedimentary rock. Okay, um, now you can see the surface that's how it looks from below. So this is about the building up of sediments, and this is a contrapuntal kind of action where this is about the dissolving of sediments. So it's to draw your attention to the passage of time and to the very. I mean. I don't know how many centuries it's going to take for a really hard rock to dissolve. I don't know. And certainly how many it takes to build it up. But it's a very, very long time. It's hard for us to imagine deep time because we're used to thinking in... Well, as a matter of fact, we're used to thinking in five-year electoral cycle time, short time, expedient time. At the very most, we might think of our three-score years and ten our parents, our grandparents, but it's pretty hard for us to kind of think historically beyond that. But some of us do, we think of human histories, and then there's this massive period of non-human history from which we come. It's not as if we're separate from it. Anyway, sedimentation. Let's go around the corner and we'll look at some more processes of sediment. Can I ask you another question? I'm... Intensely interested in, in the subject, but I'm also intensely interested in the decisions you've made, curatorial, and um, it's very unusual to see us two small pieces of work with so much room around them. Yep.
1: Well, it's, it's no, to give it to, it's, it's exciting. To
0: give, it's exciting, and that's part of the reason we painted the room blue as well, to give you a feeling of space. And you might kind of, if you were down deep under the ocean. One of those things might loom up to you and then go away. Excellent. So, we've, yeah, it's... Um, we tried to give it a bit of spatial nuance so that the viewer gets a better feeling for, for the work. It's worked. Good. Thank you. Okay. Um, because we were talking about sedimentation before... Let me draw your attention to this piece. Now, this is by the Scottish artist Anne Bevan, who, oddly enough, comes from Orkney, where that piece was uh, made by an Australian artist. And this piece is called Sprinkle. And you can see that what it's doing is kind of alluding to it. It's not describing directly, but it's suggesting this process of sedimentation. And you know when I was talking about the plankton, the teeny little creatures in there? Remember I was talking about that? That's what they look like when they're magnified under a very powerful microscope. So, and that's... These are the two-dimensional prints of these magnified cre- microscopic creatures. As she worked with scientists at the University of Edinburgh to get these images down... And this is a 3D print of the same creature, magnified thousands of times, because you can't see them with the human eye. They're very, very, very tiny. And the creature that lived inside this built this exoskeleton, a shell, if you like. You know how, like, shrimps have shells, lobsters have shells. They're their skeleton. Now, skeletons on the outside of their body, their exoskeleton. And the problem with creatures with exoskeletons now in the ocean is they're in trouble because of the problem of ocean acidification. And what happens globally is that the oceans form a kind of sink, clean up the CO2 in the atmosphere. That happens naturally anyway. But now the oceans are under deep strain because... They've got excess CO2, excess carbon dioxide that they're absorbing into the oceans. And what this is doing is making the ocean more acidic. Now, it's not the case that these creatures have... It's not like the acid is burning into their shell. The problem is in the chemistry of the ocean so that the pH balance in the ocean, the alkaline level when it's natural and it's not affected by co2 has a thing called calcium carbonate in it and that and these creatures draw the calcium carbonate from the ocean and they build their shell as they grow but now they can't do it properly they're being it's a terrible thing that's happening they can't fully form their shells and the problem is these Everything in the ocean depends on these creatures, from krill and little fish all the way up to whales and seals and dolphins, turtles, everything depends on that because the whole food chain comes down to the plankton. And if you destroy the plankton, you're going to get a dead ocean, completely dead ocean. So what's happening to these little things is very, very important. Now, here's an Australian artist dealing with this idea. Her name is Debbie Simmons, and she made this um, animation of a sea butterfly. They're called sea butterflies, but she's called this work the butterfly effect. Have you ever heard that thing about the butterfly effect? Like a butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon jungle and there's a storm in China, something like that. In other words, it's about complexity theory, that one little um, change that happens can have unforeseen consequences and in, in, in much larger consequences. Um, not always, but it can do. So added CO2 in the atmosphere absorbed by the ocean that affects things like sea butterflies is going to have an unforeseen effect of damaging the food chain and so what she does with this this is she across the bottom of the screen there every now and then you'll see the level of the ph levels of the ocean from pre-industrial times to now and the ph level is dropping the alkaline level is dropping as the acidity rises obviously and this thing starts off looking quite opaque But by the end of the sequence, it's very thin and fragile and semi-transparent. It's at risk. So these two artists are approaching this problem from a different perspective. And Bevan shows you the beautiful construction of this exoskeleton and and, and emphasises fragility. She's alluding to the process of sedimentation. And this artist brings in the static of, if you like, industrialized modernity that, lays, that lowers the pH level. And here comes the creature. You can see how its shell is thinning up, coming down. So they're telling the same story in us from a slightly different perspective, but it's a very important change that's happening in global oceans. And it's not doing it by saying, hey, now, look here, you've got to stop burning fossil fuels and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. It's not telling you what to do. It's revealing a change as it happens in a subtle way. Now, let's go over and have a look at this image in the corner. Um, Now, Helen... Is Helen here? No, she's not. Oh, that, that slipped in the frame. Um, we've had a technical problem here I don't know why this has happened but this drawing has slipped, just ignore that for now we'll fix it when we finish the talk this is a young Australian artist called Simon Finn and he's about to start a PhD with me and, and the other supervisor is going to be Dominic Redfern who made that work on Scarabrain, and he's just won a scholarship to do his PhD in the School of Art with us and I decided to include him in the show because it's so good. And he's a diver, so he took this in Port Phillip Bay, he went down under the water, turned his camera up and filmed in video the the underwater um, image of the surface, which is complex and constantly shifting. Went back to the studio... And he didn't project this, he just drew it freehand. his charcoal drawing. And he's using the medium in a quite a knowing way because this is also made of charcoal. This is by him as well. And the bottom layers are charcoal. And then on the top, that is um, a 3D print of data taken from the ships on the surface of the ocean. And fed into a computer and interpreted through a um, and made concrete, if you like, through just some sort of plastic resin, resin material <clears throat> that records the surface movement. And what this is about is the dangers, if you like, of um, carbon fuels. I know our politicians think coal is very sexy material. They even carry lumps of it into Parliament. And say, Look at this. This is great. You know, that happened recently. Um, but in fact, burning of this fossil fuel is exactly what's creating that problem over there, the acidification. So he's looking again at the idea of sedimentation and time, but from a different angle. Uh, let's go this way. We're going to start here with this image by Jason... Dakaris Taylor, again. And this work is off the coast of Spain, again. He's only just completed that. This is the first time this work's been seen in Australia. And this work is called Crossing the Rubicon. Who knows what Crossing the Rubicon means? Anyone? Okay. I'll suggest that the reason you're not sure what this means is that people don't are not taught classic, the classics anymore in schools. Um, crossing the Rubicon refers to a time when Julius Caesar, who'd been up in Germany, telling the Germans what... Well, it wasn't called Germany then, but up north of uh, Italy, telling people what to do and how to live the... Um, Uh, Roman way of life, in other words conquering territory beyond um, Rome, decided that he would go back to Rome and take control. And he was making his way back down to to Rome and in the north of Italy there's a river called the Rubicon. And he knew that once he crossed that river his fate was sealed and the fate of Rome was sealed. Because if he took his army over that river, the people in Rome would realise he was coming and he was coming to take control. So once he crossed the river, that was it. It was a point of no return. If you like, it was a tipping point. And it's just used in common discourse. Crossing the Rubicon means, well, you've crossed it, can't go back now. Your course is set. The die is cast. It's just a metaphor for that process. But it's a watery metaphor because it's a river, the Rubicon. And of course, Caesar went back to Rome and he shifted the system from um, a Republican society to an imperial society. And, that, um, and so it was less democratic and he took control. And that was an important shift in the history of the Roman Empire. Anyway, he didn't come to hear about the history of the Roman Empire. It came to hear about um, these works. So Jason DeCarris-Taylor has chosen this um, term to describe a process and he says really what he's saying here is these figures underneath the water in the Atlantic off the Spanish coast are walking towards this huge wall. Now he's used the wall knowingly. We all know that walls, the idea of building walls to keep people out, keep, keep people in is pretty current in, let's say, in American politics at least. But it also represents um, a turning point. Once these people go through the portal of that wall, he's suggesting it's a gate, you can't quite see it here, but it's a gate or a portal. It's up to us to decide what kind of world is going to be on the other side. Are we going to walk into a dead ocean? We could. There are now parts of the oceans in the world that are completely dead. Completely dead, no light. Luckily they're only small at the moment. But if if the planet gets warmer, if CO two continues to rise as dramatically as it has in the last hundred years and more or you know it's getting more and more rapid, then what they're going to find on the other side of that wall is not going to look very good at all. If on the other hand we realize what's going on and we turn it around, we can make a difference, okay? So that's what this work is about. It's about the common people walking towards this future, this tipping point. Which way are we we gonna go? Are we gonna take these environmental problems seriously? Or are we just gonna kind of business business as usual? So that's what this work is about. But it's subtle, you know, you walk in, you think, you know, I could be there. People do go and, and visit these works, by the way. They get in wetsuits, tourists, and they go down and look at these marvellous sculpture. And some, and after a few years, this will be covered, hopefully it will be covered in algae and coral. It's in an area um, that's subject to uh, storms and so on. So we'll find something of an anchor, if you like, for sea life. Um, or it could get more and more polluted. Um, so there's a question mark here. And these are just ordinary people. They're you and me. Um, now let's have a look at some other forms. We've talked about ocean acidification. There's also another... Um, there are various forms of pollution happening in the world's oceans. Okay. There's ocean acidification, which is a very serious problem, particularly in the very cold... Subpolar oceans, because the chemistry there is different. I won't bore you with the explanation. There are also the sonic pollution. It's been found that whales and marine mammals, dolphins and so on, are deeply affected by sound, um, you know, big, big engines and military ships and submarines and so on. It, you know, it's like they're living in the middle of a noisy city sometimes. They're affected by the sound metal pollution heavy metals you know i don't know if you know this but you're not supposed to eat um, um, a piece of fish from a big fish like a marlin more than once a week and that's because the mercury levels in the fish are very high so that's what they say anyway the di- dietitians say you shouldn't have that kind of fish too often if you had it every meal you probably end up with a bit of mercury overload because of metal, heavy metal pollutions in the ocean. Another form of pollution is plastic. And that happens at two levels. On the one hand it's like an eyesore. There's this place in the middle of the well, in every ocean now there's a plastic, an area of plastic in every gyre. <clears throat> I should explain what a gyre is. In every there are big five big gyres. In, uh, which are like G Y R E. These are like these big um, circulatory currents that run in the ocean. That's just a natural part of the ocean. And what's happened is the more junk we throw into the ocean, they go into these big gyres and they end up as like these big floating islands of rubbish, plastic rubbish. And it doesn't break down properly. Now, it does break down to some extent. It it breaks down um, bottles, like you see here. This is by a Mexican artist called Alejandre Duran, and that's off the coast of Mexico. Rubbish from all over the world ends up on the coast of Mexico, and he sorts it out, puts it in different colours, and he makes images out of it. This is called algae. Um, And this is by an Australian artist, um, Steve Halley. And how many of these? Um, f- What's depicted in this image is five thousand nine hundred and eighty-two plastic bottles, and this work was made in two thousand and ten. Okay, so that nearly six thousand bottles—that's how many plastic bottles are produced in one second globally. One second. So. Imagine the time I've been talking. I've been talking for nearly an hour. You could fill the gallery with those plastic bottles, okay? And a lot of them end up in the ocean. They end up on different shorelines and so on. Australian rubbish has been found in Mexico. He's, he found a, a tin of, um, I don't know, some kind of um, metal spray or something uh, from Australia. But from every, all over the world. You think of the Great Southern Ocean near Antarctica as this big, pure, beautiful, wild ocean. It's full now of microplastics. I'm going to talk about microplastics in a minute. But plastic breaks down a little bit, bits and pieces, and so on. And then seabirds in the middle of the Pacific, where there's the biggest, it's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And we don't exactly know how big it is, but I've seen photos that show it like it's as far, rubbish floating as far as the eye can see. So it breaks down into little bits and pieces, and then the mother albatross comes swooping in and th- mistakes it for little fish and goes back to the chick and feeds the a chick that dies. And then when its body rots away, you can see all of the plastic junk in its stomach, um, and it's died of... Um, starvation and damage I suppose um, but even when I've been after many 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 years plastic never really breaks down completely, it becomes like what we call microplastics these tiny little bits of plastic that have entered the food chain so when you eat a piece of fish chances are it's got some microplastics in, they've even found microplastics now in mother's breast milk that's how far into our food chain plastic has invaded. Um, so here's the most immediate effect, but it's, it's stuffing up. So we've got a number of problems. This is a, um, what they call a wicked, wicked problem because you've got ocean acidification, have got warming, erosion of um, um, the coral, you've got microplastics, you've got sonic pollution, metal pollution, you know the oceans are in trouble and yet there's still a place of incredibly vibrant and beautiful life so we haven't screwed them up completely Um, um, now that video is just starting up so I'll talk about this work I wanted to just include this work by the Sydney artist Joel Rea because he's a classic bureaucratic figure there with his piece of paper and a sheaf of that You know how am I going to fix this and he's just about to be swept off his feet with a tsunami, natural forces. So it's like the kind of confrontation between a particular... And, of course, we need reason to fix these problems. and um, We need changes in policy. Um, But we also uh, need to register... I think it's very important to acknowledge the emotional effect that these changes have when you hear that the oceans parts of the oceans are dying i don't know how about you how you feel but it upsets me and artists are able to capture the potential emotional quality equally important but different maybe it's more important, scientific findings that artists listen to and then they're interpreting them. So these works are all informed by science, but they're articulating the problems in the language of art. And here, this is a young Australian artist called Josh Wodak. And this is about, again, this is the problem of sea level rise. And this guy in the photo is from the island of Tuvalu. And Tuvalu is in the Pacific and it's a very, very low-lying island and they're already, they've lost a lot of their uh, soil um, because the uh, the ocean washes over at high tide and and the soil gets salt in it and they can't grow anything. And anyway, the tides are coming higher and higher and higher and eventually they'll lose their island. Where will they go? Um, I think recently a couple of our... Steam politicians were caught on camera joking about, about this problem. Well, it's not a joke for these guys because if they stay at home, they're going to have difficulty breathing. So that's what this work is about. Now, we've heard a lot of grim things about the ocean, but it's very important to me that we don't just think about the problems as a kind of which can leave you feeling, well, wow, it's stuff. basically, leave you with a feeling of despair. Some of these works also have a curiously resonant poetic beauty, and I wanted to capture that as well, because it shows us how precious these oceans are. Yes, we've got serious problems, but we're not yet at a point where we may, we may as well just give up. We're far from that point. So it's a kind of a little urge to to action going on here or more reflective thought at the very least. Um, Maybe a capacity to just examine your own felt emotion about these changes. You know, often in public discourse, emotions are trivialised. I once did an interview after I curated a show called 2112, Imagining the Future. And what I did was I invited artists from all around the world to imagine how the world would look in 100 years' time. It was a really um, well-received exhibition. And a lot of the artists were worried about the environment. Others had other ideas. Um, But I went on radio onto a programme on the Radio National called Future Tense, and the guy was asking about the exhibition because they often talk about the future on the show it's called Future Tense they talk about science fiction and so on and then he said to me oh, so I guess, you know your show's a bit touchy-feely and I said, yeah, it's exactly what it is touchy-feely that's what it is and he he was a bit taken aback because he thought I'd say oh no, it's all about reason and, you know, da-da-da-da-da well no, it's it's based on reason But it examines... We're not just about reason. We're also... Our lives are emotional lives as well. We feel things um, emotionally in our hearts and our bodies as well as in our minds. You can't separate them. And I think it's important to examine how we feel about these changes that are going on. Okay. Okay. And one of the ways we can feel is a sense of sheer wonder about the diversity, the biodiversity and the richness of life in the oceans, which is the focus of the next um, room. So we'll go and have a look. Okay, so this is a work by Lynette Walworth. And basically, that's what this work is about. Showing the complexity and the biodiversity of the underwater world. And the sheer beauty of the underwater world. Now this world still exists out there. It's not all doom and gloom. It's incredible diversity. and I'd just like to remind you before I conclude, that idea I referred to when we were over in the blue room, that this is our evolutionary home. This is the source from which we came. Um, there's a very good book. Um, trying to remember the author. <clears throat> the author's name might come to me in a minute, but the title of the book is called Your Inner Fish. If you just Google your inner fish, you'll get the top. I can't remember the author's name, but it's about how we evolved from the ocean. Our limbs, our lungs, everything. Of course, it takes millions and millions of years, but it's not as if we're entirely separate from, from this ocean. So I'm going to leave you here just to think about these beautiful life forms. And thank you very much for your attention.